Singing is warfare. Think of it that way. Singing is warfare because we engage the darkness with words of truth, a darkness that is characterized by lies and deception in this fallen world. And the book of Psalms is 150 songs for warfare. Songs that engage every emotional state a human being can have in this world and songs that give words to our hearts. We need these lyrics. We need mighty melodies. We need truth to combat the lies around us, the indwelling sin within us. I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul. He tells the Colossians as much in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. With Psalm 33, we shall let the word of Christ dwell richly among us. And in this psalm, the writer exhorts us to sing to the Lord and shout with joy. Through singing, we call to mind, we remember. Through singing, we stir hope. Through singing, we teach and shape. Singing is theological education. Through singing, we exalt Christ and proclaim his worth. Through singing, we have hearts resonating with words that identify our need and that point us to the one we trust. Through singing, we are pointing our hearts toward the merciful kindness and strength of the Lord Jesus. We'll do this through Psalm 33 today. The Lord is so kind and gracious to shepherd us through the words of the Psalms for our souls. And you might have noticed that in the reading of the opening verses of the Psalm, there was no claim of authorship. We're actually used to seeing one as a pattern. We're used to seeing something like a Psalm of David. But there isn't a Psalm of David superscription above verse 1. In fact, there are only four Psalms in all of book 1 that lack a superscription of authorship. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 10, and our psalm this morning, Psalm 33. There are reasons that people have uh, taken to themselves and and spoken and written accordingly that may still have a, a reason to see these in light of David, even though Psalm 2 lacks an authorship claim. In the book of Acts, the words of Psalm 2 are ascribed to David, which is an interesting move. Because if we were to see Psalm 2 as coming from David, Psalms 1 and 2 go together as a unit. And Psalm 9 is a psalm of David. And Psalms 9 and 10 go together as a unity. So perhaps Davidic authorship is extended to Psalm 10. Well, where do we find Psalm 33? After a psalm of David. In fact, Psalms 32 and 33 in some traditions of manuscripts have been treated as one psalm together, interestingly enough. There is a a tighter reason beyond just that tradition, though. The end of our last psalm and the beginning of this one seem to join them close together and may actually make a case that though technically anonymous, the shadow of David is over this psalm as well. Look at the end of Psalm 32. Psalm 32 gave a command, okay? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now let's just look at the very next verse. You've got to go to a different psalm now. But the very next verse is Psalm 33.1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. The last psalm ended 
with a call to be glad and rejoice. And the next psalm begins with a command to shout for joy in the Lord. Not only that, look who's addressed at the end of Psalm 32. The righteous and the upright. Who do we find mentioned in Psalm 33, 1, both of those groups with the exact same terms. So the same command to rejoice and the same groups in view, the righteous and the upright. It's as if David in Psalm 32 is celebrating the forgiveness that he has received and all who come to God as their refuge receive. Psalm 32, 1 and 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. David ends Psalm 32 saying, be glad in the Lord. And then he says, I think in Psalm 33, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Take Psalm 33 as an example of David saying, let us celebrate before God. For he's great and his forgiveness is upon his people and his power is transcendent and sovereign. This is a celebration of God. The takeaway in Psalm 33 It's going to be in the last few verses. Where in verses 20 to 22, the writer is going to be corporate and plural with his encouragements. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The reason the psalm is going to end that way, the reason the psalmist is going to pray that way, is because of everything that leads up to that point. What is it that's going to drive him to say, so therefore we as the people of God, we will wait upon the Lord. As the people of God, we will hope in him and be glad in him. Why would he say that? Well, you need all of Psalm 33 to get you to that place leading up to that wonderful resolve. In verses 1 to 3, there's a call to praise the Lord. The commands, a call to praise the Lord, go like this. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. So the opening and ending of these verses is about shouting for joy. That God is the kind of God that does not warrant a muffling life, but rather a life of jubilant, passionate praise. Because God is worthy all-powerful, exalted in all the earth, full of redeeming grace towards sinners. And he, in Psalm 32, has just celebrated the forgiving grace of God upon us. And he says in Psalm 33, praise befits the upright. How's that for a verb in the ESV? It befits. What's meant by befit is that it's corresponding to and is appropriate with. It fits together like hand and glove. Praise belongs on the lips of the upright. It would be out of sync or, or out of, uh, out of uh, propriety for those who claim to know the Lord to have no praise to God on their lips. That would be unbefitting. So praise befits the upright. The righteous and the upright are those whose refuge is God. And they know that if God is their refuge, he is worthy of their praise. For he's delivered them. He has not counted their sin against them, but covered it with his atoning work. And so in verse 2, we're called to not only give praise, but thanks to God. Because praise and thanksgiving go together. When we meditate on what God has done, 
It naturally will stir within us gratitude within our hearts. And before we know it, that gratitude is expressed. An expression of thanksgiving and praise unto God for His greatness. And not only that, but a call for musical accompaniment. We love the sound of human voices. We love the sound of human voices set to music. Praising God with the lyre and making melody with the harp of ten strings. This is the first time in the Psalms that musical instruments are mentioned. The first time. Here in book one, we find the first occurrence in Psalm 33, and it won't be the last either. Many musical references to come. Now, there have been people who have said over time that human voices are what's necessary. And because the New Testament doesn't mention music, we shouldn't have instruments to accompany our worship. I think that's mistaken. And especially in Ephesians 5.19, where it says in the New Testament that we're to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, just like in Colossians 3.15 that I quoted earlier, 3.15 or 3.16. In Colossians 3 that I quoted earlier, the psalmist is calling us to sing with psalms. And the psalms tell us, in singing them, to accompany them with instruments. It would be quite weird to obey something the New Testament says, which takes us to the Old Testament in the Psalms and calls for musical accompaniment. So in other words, we don't need the New Testament to mention instruments for them to be included in our worship. The New Testament incorporates the Old Testament practice of worship accompanied by musical instruments. All right, I think that case is closed, don't you? All right, now, with that said, in verse 3, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Oh, we want to strive to do our best as we gather together. We want to bring excellence before God. We want to bring our voices together in time with music. And we want to play and sing with excellence as we strive with shouting and joy unto God. Songs of praise. But this is the first time in the Bible the phrase new song is mentioned. And there are seven occurrences of this in the Old Testament. Six in the book of Psalms. Once in the book of Isaiah. But seven times in the Old Testament, singing a new song is mentioned. Psalm 33 is unique then. First time musical instruments occur in the Psalms. And the first occurrence in the Old Testament of this language, new song. And it seems with this phrase to mean God has some fresh work of deliverance or redemption that has warranted us a new, warranted for us a new and, and perhaps a fresh effort of skillfully composing and celebrating his goodness and grace. Not because old songs don't matter. This is a new song in conjunction with what we already celebrate in the Lord. We know that in our time at Cosmos Dale, if you've been here for many months, you recognize we rejoice together in new songs that have been written that speak of God's truth and old songs that speak together of God's truth. We love old and new songs to exalt God. That's what we want to do. We don't want to limit ourselves to one season of life, season of church history with the reservoir of music. We believe God has gifted musicians and composers throughout the ages to tell of his wonders and grace. And we want to join with them. Amen. And so in verse 3, this new song language is no doubt beginning in Psalm 33 here in light of the previous psalm. Psalm 32 celebrates the forgiving grace of God. So David says that warrants not just old songs, but even new compositions for his wonders and grace and loud shouts therein. Now, there are reasons for this call to praise that verses 1 to 3 give us. And I think you can isolate in verses 4 to 19, three reasons, three reasons for praising the Lord. 
And reason number one is in verses four to nine, the power of God's word, the power of God's word. This is going to be emphasized by the psalmist here in its opening in verse four with the word of the Lord. The power of God's word is celebrated as a reason for why we shout unto God in verses one to three. For the word of the Lord is upright, which tells us it is good and true. His word is upright in that it is righteous and all his work, which would be the work done in conjunction with God's word, what he sends his word to accomplish, his work is done in faithfulness so that God's work is according to his upright word. All that God does is good. All that he commands is good. All of his wisdom is pure. The word of the Lord tells us this and it is upright in his work done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. I think verse 5 is telling us why his word is upright. Because God is committed to what is right. He loves the right thing. He's not a vacillating deity of an ancient pantheon that loves immorality and injustice and is wicked in his heart. Rather, God in his nature and what his delight is and what his works are according to is right and just. He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. These two verses pile up wonderful terms. Upright, faithfulness, righteousness, justice, steadfast love. All in just a couple verses, these these terms are piled together and these are treasuring terms for us. We love that the Lord is righteous and good. We love that his steadfast love fills the earth. He, he loves justice and is upright. All of these words matter to us because they highlight not only the power of his word, but that this God of all power is a God of holiness, a God of righteousness who is just. In verses six and following, the word of the Lord, the power of his word is made clear by remembering creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, All their host. The host here is a reference to the heavenly bodies and stars in the skies. He gathers the waters of the sea in verse 7 as a heap and he puts the deeps into storehouses. This is likely a reference to the depths upon the earth and the heavenly storehouses above. Where in Genesis 1, the God of creation makes from nothing all things. And then shapes and orders and forms and fills his creation. What are verses 6 and 7 reminding us of? That God is creator. We are introduced in the Bible to God as creator of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the word of the Lord. We might be quite frustrated in life from time to time when we wish our words, what we say or an instruction we give or, or a recommendation we make, we wish our words were heeded. We don't have this kind of power. Behold the power of God who speaks and commands and brings to pass all that he wills. We are not like God in this way. God reigns with sovereignty over the world. By his word the heavens are made. So why are you and I here and why is there something rather than nothing? Because of the powerful word of the Lord. So the people of God shout for joy for this truth. We celebrate with rejoicing that God's word is like this. And in verse 8, the proper response. For all the earth. 
for all the earth would be to fear the Lord. Given the fact that this God is a God like this, holy and righteous, upright and just, and creator and sovereign over all things, what should the earth do? In verse 8, let the earth fear the Lord. That is the proper response of mankind. Let the earth fear the Lord. All the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. This is a response of reverence and worship. A response of trust and acclaim. A response of creature to creator to exalt the Lord. The Lord is worthy of all of this. Worthy of worldwide, multinational, unceasing, earthly and heavenly praise. Verse 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He said, let there be light. And there was light. You go back to Genesis 1 and you see what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is just reflecting on the Bible. The psalmist is echoing the creation account from Genesis 1 and 2. God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Having a command with the result of standing firm is the language of a superior giving an authoritative directive. Think about a military setting where a command is given to to march and the march is made. Or a command to give to stand still and they stand at attention. God commands and creation does exactly what he calls it to do. A reflection on Genesis 1 and 2. Not only should we celebrate and shout for joy for reason number one, the power of God's word. Here's reason number two. Verses 10 through 12, the triumph of God's plans. The triumph of God's plans. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart stand to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The counsel of the nations is brought to nothing, verses 10 through 12 say. These verses celebrate the triumph of God's plans. Not only is God creator of the heavens and the earth, not only did he speak and it came to be, the raging nations have defied him rather than standing in awe of him. What is the world ought to do? They ought to fear the Lord. They ought to, as inhabitants of the earth, stand in awe of Him. Instead, they draw together counsel and conspiracy, wicked ragings and malice against the Lord and against His people. And so they exalt themselves in their folly. It's like the Tower of Babel all over again. The Tower of Babel where they said, come, let's come together and make a name for ourselves. And the Lord judged their enterprise That they had cultivated and counseled with themselves to bring together. And he brought it to nothing in Genesis 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Because this counsel is wicked counsel. It's self-exalting counsel. And the Lord will not share his glory with another. He alone to him belongs all worth and blessing and honor. So he brings the wickedness of the nations to nothing. Their plans are in vain. He frustrates the plans of the people's. It might remind you of Psalm 2 where the nations and the the Gentiles gather together against the anointed one. In Psalm 2, not far into the book of uh, one of the Psalms, we get this language of people gathering together saying, let's burst his bonds apart. Let's go our own way and exercise our own will and we will defy his authority. But the Lord says in Psalm 2, I've set my king on my holy hill. And he will judge the nations with a rod of iron. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
In Psalm 2, we were reminded many psalms earlier of the foolishness of those gathering together to defy the Lord. And we're told here in verses 10 to 12, the triumph of God's plans is a reason to exalt him. Because he loves righteousness and he will judge wickedness. He is upright and therefore rebellion will meet condemnation. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Oh, the nations may think they're so clever. And that in their wicked strategies, they can sustain and survive and abide ad infinitum on, 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 and on forever. They shall not. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. He brings their plans to nothing. And it is God's forever plan that will be established. The plans of his heart stand to all generations. In verse 12, this is a reference in the Old Testament to the uniqueness of the Israelite people over against the other nations. Notice the context here that verse 12 appears in. Verse 10 told us about the council of nations that he's bringing to nothing. But you see in the Old Testament, he did set apart a people as the apple of his eye through whom he would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. The people of Abraham. The descendants of Abraham were the Israelites. And from the Israelites would come the Messiah. And with the Israelites, the Lord entered into a covenant at Mount Sinai. They built a tabernacle that traveled with them in the wilderness toward a promised land. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. This is a statement about God's covenant with the Israelites through whom he works out his plans that endure forever. Over against which he triumphs over those wicked nations whose counsel he brings to nothing. So how should we think about this as the New Testament people? Well, we want to remember that in the Old Testament uh, timeline, the Israelites are a nation state. They are a particular people with civil laws in one location and the New Covenant Church is different. In fact, the New Covenant Church is a multinational people spread throughout the earth. I want you to listen to how the New Testament applies the nation language to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter, and in chapter 2, Peter says to the church of of the Lord Jesus, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we ask ourselves as Christian readers of the Psalms, who has the Lord chosen as his heritage, this holy nation of his? And the answer is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb throughout the nations of the earth, who shall come to him with everlasting praise and tribute. Amen. We are called in the New Testament, the holy nation and priesthood, those chosen by God who have been redeemed by his blood. We belong to him. We are blessed of God. We are chosen of God, set apart for his glory to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Why do we exist as the church? We exist as the local church to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We've been called out of darkness into light for that reason. We are a holy priesthood, a holy people, a holy nation. That's who we are as the church to proclaim his excellencies. We then celebrate and rejoice in God because of the power of his word, the triumph of God's plans, and then lastly and thirdly, the vastness of God's sight. The vastness of God's sight. Verses 13 to 19. The Lord looks down from heaven... He sees all the children of man 
From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. We notice here that this is human language to try to describe a vantage point. All of us know what this is like when we might be in a crowd and someone is taller than us in front and you say, I need to get in a different spot so that I can see better. All right, well, the God of heaven and earth is like, not, not like a human being saying, I need to make sure I can get to heaven so that I can see everything. This is human accommodating language trying to describe the all-seeing, omniscient eye of God where he knows all things, sees all things. It's as if he, has, um, he is enthroned at the highest vantage point where there's nothing that escapes his view. There's no man or woman on this earth that is escaping his sight. He is enthroned. That's what verses 13 through 15 uh, mention. Not only is he enthroned overall, his, his very imminent and intimate relation and connection to mankind is described in verse 15 where he fashions the hearts of them. Which is a way of saying we are made in the image of God. That we are not human beings removed from God as our creator, but rather the creator is why any of us exist. And therefore we are fashioned by God, formed by God, endowed with dignity and honored by God. He knows us and fashions us and observes all our deeds. Now this puts mankind in a predicament. Because the all-seeing God who reigns in heaven and earth, you would think that in our right minds, we would revere the Lord, fear the Lord, not worship and craft idols for ourselves and not plunge headlong into folly and rebellion and, and look to other things as our strength and salvation. But it is indeed the case, then and now, That given God's role as creator of the heavens and earth, former and maker of our very hearts and lives, seer and knower of all of our lives, thoughts and deeds, that people will turn from this God, exchange truth for a lie, and plunge headlong in folly and rebellion and idolatry. And this includes the mightiest of the mighty in the ancient world. And they needed to remember in verses 16 and 17 that given what we know about God, of his powerful word and the triumph of his plans. And here, the fact that in verses 13 to 19, the vastness of his sight, we should not pursue false salvation. He says in verses 16 and 17, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. And the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. In the ancient world, someone might look, comparatively speaking, at someone's army versus theirs, and they think, oh, then we have a great army, we'll be fine. Or they might look at the soldiers and the weaponry and say, that person, their strength is is, uh, inferior, we have great strength. And they might look at their war horses and all of the might they can muster and say, we have great might, great strength, a great army. We shall deliver ourselves. And the Lord says, you cannot count on earthly means for your deliverance. Trust the Lord. The king, the war horse, the warrior. Whatever greatness they think they can pull together and all of their political and military might 
pales in comparison to the God who spoke and it came to be. You think your war horses are anything to him? The one who fashions our hearts, the one who makes the deeps put in their storehouses, the one who forms the seas and gathers them in a heap, you think the great kings of the ancient Near East were anything to him? Instead, we're told in verse 17, the war horse is a false hope and you need to believe it. A false hope of salvation. And as Christians, we have to be willing to identify and use the language of the Bible in this way. Looking to something other than God for our refuge and hope, we call it a false hope of salvation. No matter what the Lord has gifted and empowered, no matter what good things may come from, those things cannot be hopes of salvation. That is a false hope of salvation, verse 17 says. You think those things are having great might and great army and great strength. They're not greater than God. So in verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Because all the earth should stand in awe of God, but they don't. But there are those who do. There are those who do turn to the Lord. And his eye is on them. And you say, well, wait a second. He's already enthroned and sees and looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. How is this different? Because in verse 18 and 19, there's a language of a covenant care, a compassion, a I work all things for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose kind of sovereign care and love. It's a covenant love. Verses 18 and 19, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. In other words, who are those who fear the Lord? Those who fear the Lord are those who trust in God, body and soul, who commit themselves to God and say, You alone are my refuge, not some war horse, not some mighty king, not my own strength. What do I need in life and death? What do I need in body and soul to trust you, God? In verses 18 and 19, those who fear the Lord, God loves them, knows them, keeps them, sustains them. He is for them and not against them. Christians do not see Christ as a last resort. Rather, we believe in his promises and we delight in his word. In all the goodness of life and all the challenges of this day, we want to be those who fear the Lord because his eye is upon us. His care is with us. His presence is for us in these important ways. Think of the vantage point God has. Being God, He understands you the most. There's no one who understands you more than God. He also loves you the most. There's no one who loves you more than God. He's in the best position to help you more than anybody else can. So why would you not trust Him? The one who understands you the most, loves you the most, isn't in the best position to help and strengthen you. Flee to Him. What a mighty refuge he is, mightier than any other worldly means you could look to. It's those three reasons, the power of God's word and the triumph of God's plans, the vastness of God's sight that leads the psalmist to end with this resolve. And it's a lovely resolve. What a way to climax here with the psalm. Our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. The psalmist believes this. Is it always easy to believe that? It is not. That's why he sings so that he can remember. That's why he brings these truths to his heart and mind so that he will know, I will not wait for the Lord in vain. It is good and right to wait for the Lord. Praise befits the lips of the upright because he's our help and our shield. For our heart, in verse 21, is glad in him because we trust 
in His holy name. Genuine trust in Christ is followed by gladness in Him. Our heart is glad because we trust. Our heart is glad because we trust. That order is significant. We find our joy in what our refuge is. And there is no joy more dependable and certain in this life than knowing God. To trust Him as our refuge. His holy name. His holy, holy, holy name. Which is upright and righteous. Whose love is directed with sovereign covenant care toward His people. He says, we trust that. Therefore, we are glad. We are glad in Him. So, closing prayer in verse 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us. Even as we hope in you. I told you that in the, New, in the Old Testament, the phrase new song appears seven times. What I didn't tell you yet, that I want to tell you now, is that the phrase new song appears in the New Testament as well. And it appears in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, they sang a new song. The only time in the New Testament it's mentioned. What prompts, we might wonder... This new song, what great work of salvation, what great wonder or deed, what mighty rescue has God done that in the Old Testament warranted those kinds of new song language? What's he done? Well, Revelation says they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So they sing a new song because that happened. That's why they sing a new song. And then in Revelation 14, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And they were singing a new song before the throne. In Revelation, the new song language... It's tied to the victory of Jesus. It is tied to the victory of Jesus so that the joy of his people is wrapped up in what he has done on their behalf on the mighty cross. The tree of victory, not defeat. The tree of finished atonement and triumph. God spoke and it came to be. What a mighty work of creation. And then his work of redemption. His work of redemption in the Gospels. Foreshadowed by many acts and rescues in the Old Testament. But none greater than the cross. Warranting the language of new song. God is the creator of all things. He is our redeemer. His plans triumph over the wicked in this world. And he in his vastness of sight. Cares with covenant love. So here's what I know. If he can uphold all things, he can uphold me. And if he can count the stars and he can call them by his great power, then my burdens are not too big for him. He has made all things and he calls them by his word. I can trust him. I can go to him. He is my help and my shield. I think as Christians... We see as believers in the Lord Jesus, verses 20 through 22, as our prayer looking toward the return of Christ. Think now about our vantage point in redemptive history. We are those looking for Christ. And we can say, looking toward his glorious return, we look for the one who will come again, 
who will be the judge of the living and the dead, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That's the prayer Christians pray. Let's pray together.